The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Book of Serenity, Case 62, Mihu's Enlightenment or Not, the pointer. Bodhidharma's highest truth, Emperor Wu's confusion, Vilma Kirti's teaching of non-duality, Manjushri's verbal excess. Is there anyone who has the ability to enter in actively? The koan. Mihu had a student ask Yangshan, do people these days need enlightenment or not? Yangshan said, it's not that there is no enlightenment, but what can be done about falling into the secondary? The student went back and reported this to Mihu, who deeply agreed with this. The poem, Hongzhu's poem, the secondary, distinguishing enlightenment, breaking up delusion, Quickly, you should free your hands and relinquish net and trap. Accomplishment, before it's exhausted, becomes an extra thumb. Wisdom can hardly know, like you can't bite your own navel. The full moon's icy disk weeps in the autumn dew. The birds are cold in the jade tree. The dawn breeze is chill. Brought forth, great yang distinguishes real and false Completely without flaw, the white jade is esteemed. Interestingly, there were, during this introductory retreat, there were a number of of you who raised the question in different ways of whether it's realistic to practice and enlighten oneself, particularly as a lay person, as a home dweller. And the Buddha in his time, acknowledged that yes, the answer is yes, unequivocally, (laughs) because we all have Buddha nature, and also acknowledged that, you know, what we consider traditional practice, those profound practices that are most powerful and effective and have been passed down to us, do require time and energy in a dedicated manner, in that in lay life, there are many responsibilities and things that need to be taken care of and the turning out into those things and the energy and the attention that goes out into those things and that can make it more difficult to see that as also turning in and also to have that dedicated time to turn in to do your meditation and to do sessions and so on and so it's a different path than the monastic path it also gives you, I remember years ago, a student came into Doksan and was kind of complaining that, you know, I got to see my teacher every week and be here and train in this way. And I said, yeah, but, you know, when I go up to my cabin at night, there aren't two, I don't have two daughters who run up and say, Daddy, which he did. And I said, we make our choices, you know, and each of those, the choices we make Good choices bring goodness into our lives in different ways and also have, you know, 
influence in terms of what they, um, what fields they open up and what other th challenges they might present to us. And so I wanted to, um, I had already, of course, selected this koan, and so this question, in a sense, becomes even more germane. On the koan, so the koan is a particular and, and um, somewhat unique, not utterly unique, because dialogues between teacher and student, for instance, is as old as religious practices. And in, in many traditions, you can see into those dialogues and, and see in ways in which they are not ordinary conversations. The way language is used, what is being pointed to, the effect that it has on the questioner in terms of illuminating something of their own tradition or themselves. But koans are unique or an aspect of the koan tradition in the Zen tradition is <clears throat> that they're taken up as meditation, um, within one's meditation. So the koan becomes the focus, the focal point of one's meditation. And they're drawn from sutras and dialogues such as this or um, just events that happen in the course of, a, of, of living and practicing together. Dada Roshi gave a talk years ago on an excerpt from um, Alice's Through the Looking Glass. And so in a sense, many things can be taken up as a koan, which is really a question that brings us into the fundamental matter. A question that is not about logic and just trying to give or receive information, but is really trying to illuminate the mind to, to bring about a great release of attachment and a shift of, of, of insight that transforms us. In this koan, Mihu and Yangshan were Dharma brothers. They had both studied with Guishan. So this is 9th century China, and Guishan studied with Bai Zheng. So this was a very a rather luminous lineage. And Miu and Yangshan were also Dharma brothers of Liu Tiemo, one of the women ancestors that we chanted um, today, who also shows up in, in the koan literature. And so Miu basically sends a student to his Dharma brother, Yangshan, and tells him to ask this question. So why is he doing this? Is it a, a, a kind of communication between these Dharma siblings? Is it for the benefit of the monastic, the courier of this question? Do people these days need enlightenment or not? The monastics this week started studying a, a, a piece by Thomas Merton on the monastic life, and I want to draw from that and sort of paraphrase it so that it's not just about monastic life. And in that, Merton said, in a world of noise and confusion and conflict, it's necessary for there to be places of silence, inner discipline, and peace. Not the peace of mere relaxation, but the peace of inner clarity and love based on renunciation, letting go. In a world of tension and breakdown, it's necessary for there to be people who seek to integrate their inner lives, not by avoiding anguish and running away from problems, but by meeting them in their naked reality, and in their ordinariness. And that's oftentimes when we don't, why we don't recognize the significant and auspicious moments that arise that offer us passage because they can be very, so very ordinary. And we think if it's a, 
if it's a religious or spiritual or awakening kind of threshold, then it's got to, you know, come with certain sounds and visuals and, you know, announced, this is your opportunity, right? <laughs> it's their very ordinariness that makes them so powerful and sometimes hard to see. Burton goes on to say, let no one justify the monastery as a place from which, or a sangha, we might say, as a place from which anguish is utterly absent and in which people have no problems. This is the myth closely related to the other myth that religion itself disposes of all people's anxieties. Faith itself implies a certain anguish, and I would add doubt, spiritual doubt, also brings forth a certain anguish and it helps us to meet our inner suffering, not as a magic formula for making our problems vanish. And of course, he's speaking from his own tradition here. It's not by extraordinary spiritual adventures or by dramatic and hero heroic ex exploits, and I'll come back to that because sometimes it is, <laughs> that the student comes to terms with life. The monastery teaches people to take their own measure and accept their own ordinariness their own Buddha nature. In a word, it teaches us the truth about ourselves, which is known as humility. And when the monastics were studying this, we looked at the question, is it important that there be places such as this? Is it important that there be people, such as the people in this hall, the people gathered together, who recognize that this or something like this because maybe you're still clarifying what your path is, is important. And not just important for you, but important to be in the world, to have in the world, in a world of tension and breakdown. Is that important? Does it matter? Is it important to look deeply, to go directly into the ground of being, what we call the great matter? Buddhism can be practiced in many different ways, like essentially any spiritual, religious tradition. It can be a way of finding some calm in your life, of living a moral life, of finding a community, all good things, all good things. And those are all an aspects of the Buddhist path. But there's much, much more in this path for those who seek, for those who feel that something more is important. You know, I was saying to somebody this morning that Dada Roshi used to often talk about taking responsibility and how we, each of us, is responsible for our lives. And I was saying, you know, in my early years, I used to listen, because he would say that over and over, and I'd say, yeah, I get it. I get it already. I'm responsible. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know in the way that he was trying to communicate, that he was communicating. The message was being sent, but not received. I didn't understand how utterly, how deeply that was true, that each of us is responsible for our lives, and we do have a responsibility to each other. I spoke about that a little bit yesterday. But on that seat, only you can breathe your breath. Only you can meet your mind. Only you can see into your patterns. Only you can let go. No one can make you do that. Do people these days need enlightenment or not? 
Delusion in Buddhism means not having light. Living and going through a bright sunny day such as this. Our eyes are open, we see things, our ears, our senses are open, we experience things. But there's a way in which there, there's a light that is not shining through. Not because it's absent, because it's never absent. And so the image that's used to try and convey this is of the sun that is bright and radiant in all directions, life-giving radiance, but it gets clouded, right? That when clouds appear, it shrouds that light and it doesn't shine so brightly. Enlightenment is the light shines freely. It illuminates freely in all directions, seeing and knowing beyond the appearance of things, beyond our ordinary way of seeing, seeing with one's whole being, knowing and understanding beyond just ideas and beliefs, seeing into the nature of self, into the nature of others, into nature of things, time, realizing there are no fixed boundaries, that all things are impermanent, and that's their nature. And because of that, things are possible. Change, practice, letting go, freeing ourselves is all possible. Did we arise and depart in every moment, moment after moment, that all things abide in a basic state of peace, in their own state, in their own nature, complete unto themselves? When that light does not shine freely, that's not what we see. When we look at ourselves, we don't see that. When we look at others, we don't see that. And then we proceed on the basis of what we see. Things are incomplete. They are broken, out of place. In the commentary, there's a story of the national teacher, national teacher at that time in China, who asked their attendant monastic, what does Buddha mean? And the student said, it means enlightened. The national teacher said, has a Buddha ever been deluded? And the student says, no, never. And the natural, national teacher said, then what's the use of enlightenment? If a Buddha's never deluded, then what's the point of enlightenment? What, why is it needed? Before enlightenment, after enlightenment, there is no self to grasp, to improve, to make better, to make more. So sometimes when you see teachers talk about small self, large self, I think that's misleading. It's not about size. It's not a size. Well, what is it that we're enlightened to? And so Buddhism speaks of the ground of being, self-nature, real nature, ultimate truth, dharmata, non-duality, timeless awareness, suchness, Buddha nature. All of these are words that describe, but they can't convey, right? Mentioning all those words, has your life just changed? Have all of your burdens been laid down? In an early text, it reads, a trap is how to get a rabbit. When the rabbit is caught, you can let go of the trap. A net is how to get a fish. When the fish is caught, you forget the net. Leave it aside. Words are a trap for images. Images are nets for ideas. 
Those who keep the words don't get the image. Those who keep the image don't get the idea. And I would say those who keep the idea don't get the real truth. And so this is a basic teaching that is reiterated over and over, very much in the Zen tradition, Bodhidharma, who's credited with having begun the particular tradition of Chan, or Zen in the Japanese pronunciation, said that Zen is a special transmission outside scriptures, outside the sacred teachings, with no reliance on words and letters. But we use quite a few of them, right? Words and phrases. Here are some right now. We rely on the teachings. We, we study the, the sutras. But they, they describe, they point, but they cannot convey, they cannot give that which we seek. And so what that passage is really talking about is how at every point we have to let go. We have to let go. We have to let go. All the way through, all the way along, in the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. Attachment is an active thing. It's something that we're doing. It doesn't just happen, even though it appears as a habit. It's tiring. It's exhausting. It's based in insecurity and anxiety. It's a temporary balm at best. The reason we cultivate our attachments is because some degree they deliver. They deliver something that we're looking for, but it's a temporary thing. And we see that the greater the dislike or the greater the attraction, the tighter the attachment, the stronger the attachment, the harder it is to let go. And so we chant this morning to be attached to things as illusion. So when we're attached to something or someone, what are we actually attaching to? Right? When we talk about grasping and clinging, is it with our hands? Is it with our body? What is that? It's, of course, it's the mind. But we could also say, because of that, because to be attached to things is illusion, to let go of things is also illusion. For the very same reason. That things are not as they appear. They're not objects that are discrete and distinct and exist on their own and have their own power and are doing something to us. Although things happen and we are influenced, for sure. We do things to each other that have impact, of course. But what Buddhism is addressing is the suffering that arises within. And even an illusion, like letting go, can be very helpful. You know, it's like some dreams are nightmares. But sometimes you have a dream that changes your life, gives you an insight, precipitates some change. Do people these days need enlightenment or not? Yangshan says, it's not that there's no enlightenment, but what can be done about falling into the secondary? When we realize the emptiness of all things, the self-nature that is free and unfettered and boundless and vast, the essenceless essence of things. Because without something, without something fixed and solid, there is no attachment. There is no suffering. How that essenceless essence appears in sounds and forms and tactile sensations and tastes and mental objects is what he's calling the secondary, the relative, the conventional, ordinary 
life and reality. And so he says, but what can be done about falling into the secondary? It's not that there's no enlightenment about realizing the emptiness of all things, but what about the secondary? What about all this stuff going on out here? So does that mean that that can't be avoided? We can enlighten our minds, but chaos and confusion are still everywhere and we're still stuck with it. Is that what it means? Or does it mean, how can it be avoided? Yes, there's enlightenment, but how can you avoid the secondary now that you're enlightened? But if something needs to be avoided, then we're never free of it. If something needs to be avoided, then we can never really be at rest because it's always lurking. Or does he say about falling into the secondary because it can't be avoided? It's not a matter of avoiding. It is not something. It is more a matter of not diluting what is not diluted, of not dividing what is not divided. Master Dogen says emancipation means that in birth you're emancipated from birth. In death you're emancipated from death. What is the in of in birth and in death? What does it mean by when you are, means that in birth, what kind of in is that? And what is emancipation? And so he says the great way of all Buddhas thoroughly practiced is emancipation and realization. It is the great way thoroughly practiced. It is the complete practice of the great way. It is letting go and vitalizing birth and death. It is the thorough practice of the great way. How many ways Dogen is trying to point to the same thing? Birth is undivided activity. Death is undivided activity. Samsara is divided everything. And dividing. And dividing. And dividing. And we see a little bit of that, don't we? We see it everywhere. In everything. If we look carefully, we'll see it all over the place. And what the Buddha realized is that the fundamental nature of things, of everything, right here and now, everywhere, all the time, is undivided. That's why all things abide in a natural state of peace. They're not divided within themselves and they're not divided between themselves and other things. That's the power of Prajnaparamita. That's why Prajnaparamita is the great mantra the vivid mantra that we chanted this morning in the Heart Sutra. Prajnaparamita is that reality, is that realization that all things abide in their own state. And so in their uniqueness, they appear, but they're not divided. They're not two. And that's a very difficult thing to, to conceptualize. Well, how can that be? Because we think dualistically. So it's like, if you and I are the same thing, then somehow we have to mash together, right? To become one. Well, that obviously is not going to (laughs) work. And so the image of the ocean and the waves. The waves are individual. You can see them. There's one, there's one, there's one. They're in different stages of their wave life. Some are just coming, being born. Some are dying. You can ride one. But you can't take one home. You can't possess it. You can't separate it from the ocean. You wouldn't even think about it, right? That doesn't make sense. 
And so that's an image that's used to try and convey how can we be, how can there be differentiation? How can we be individual and have the same nature? And that's basically what Dharma practice is, in essence, is practicing that basic truth. In your body and mind, in our every moment, in our delusion, while we're, st- we're still attached to the sense of self, why we still basically believe and operate within duality. But the practices that we engage are actually Im- helping us to embody that non-dual state, even as our mind is still divided. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that miraculous? It's not really. Because when something is embodied, that embodiment is, by its very nature, undivided. We're already there. And so when Merton said that we shouldn't think of the monastic life as extraordinary adventures and heroic and dramatic exploits, in a way that's true because when we think of it that way in our mind, you know, we, we romanticize, we idealize, we, you know, it becomes fantasy real fast. And then if we set our sights on that, it's like, okay, that's what's supposed to happen. But I, would, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a spiritual... It depends on what you mean by adventure. <laughs> I mean, going to get some groceries could be an adventure, right? You don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Entering into practice, you don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. We think we know what's going to happen. I didn't think this was going to happen. <laughs> So that's kind of an adventure. And heroic? Well, Buddhism does speak of it that way, that the Bodhisattva path is heroic. Why? Because of its dedication to the alleviation of suffering and being undaunted by the magnitude of that endeavor, by how long it will take, by how much suffering there is, by how many suffering beings there are. Yes. See them clearly. And then take a step. We practice and we become more and more self-aware. We begin to experience what has been going on all along. In our minds, in our bodies, in the world, it all comes closer. We allow ourselves to turn towards sickness in the world, in each other, in ourselves, old age, dying. We experience things at work, in relationships, with family, friends, our society. Samsara is the turning, the spinning that happens everywhere people show up. We see the anger, the sadness, the sorrow, the loneliness, the pain, the blame, all of these mental factors, as they're described in Buddhism, all of the, the, the pantheon of beings that we bring forth, we give rise to within our mind and our bodies, and we experience and can so easily govern us and overwhelm us and dictate what happens next and become our reaction. And the Buddha said, in a sense, yes, yes. He sees, he understands, he had to face all of that within himself. And that's not who you are. 
That's not all there is. That is an action, an activity that we devote so much time and energy to. It is not necessary. But we can't just decide to stop that wheel from turning. We can't just say, okay, I'm going to be enlightened now. (laughs) Because we have developed all of that self, all of this person that we experience ourselves as and see the world through day by day, month by month, moment by moment, action by action, thought by thought. And it has become so inculcated, so integrated that we don't even see it. And so it would clearly be unrealistic to think that we're just going to drop all of that. And so to practice in any way, really, is going to require continuity, perseverance, commitment, continuing, even if it's a very simple, minimal practice. Just to meditate, just to study, it means we have to keep doing that. And in that way, in every time, in every moment, the question of, is it reasonable as a lay practitioner with work responsibilities, with family, with children, with aging parents, with a world on fire? Is it reasonable to think that you can practice and realize yourself? As I was saying to somebody this morning, just think of it this way. When we don't practice, when we don't allow ourselves to have that aspiration, we're still living every life, every, our life every day, and we're creating our life every day based on what we've got to work with. And so if that's cloudy views, a distracted mind, attachments, anxiety, fear, anger, then that's the stuff that we're using to put our life together each day. When we begin practicing and begin to really take that in and, and take it up, and you do that inside of yourself, in your mind and in your body, and in all of those places in your life, then that's what your day looks like. And that's what your mind is taking in and beginning to reflect on and bring into its consciousness and be influenced by. And you're doing it. You know, it reminded me of Dido Roshi, who used to always say, all the way to heaven is heaven itself. The problem with the path, the path of enlightenment is we think of it as the path to enlightenment, that there's this decisive moment. And there are decisive moments of shift. And then we continue. And there are countless millions, trillions of moments that pass by that you don't notice. But when we're practicing, shift is taking place because that's the way consciousness works. That's the way the mind is. And so it just turns that whole question, can I be on with all my responsibility? I mean, think of it as an enlightening path. Can you be on a path of enlightening yourself? Well, maybe you already are and don't know it. But what can be done about falling into the secondary? This world of ideas and things and differences, right? So you come to the retreat. I hope it's been a good weekend for you, those of you who are here. And now you're heading back, right? And it's all there waiting for you. (laughs) 
So what about that? Or you have a really good period of zazen. You know, you're feeling very calm and very. you love everyone and your mind is unified. And then you go downstairs and somebody does something. You think, oh, what an asshole. (laughs) So what about falling into the secondary? Well, consider that no one has ever fallen into the secondary. Or you could say that everyone is constantly falling into the secondary. Is that the appropriate question? What can be done about falling into the secondary is based on the idea that the secondary is something you better watch out for. To even talk about absolute and relative is, in a sense, creating waves where none exist. Is to create the sense that there are these two things. How are you going to work that out? How do you get to the absolute and then deal with falling into the secondary? But there's something to that. There's something in that that we do actually need to to work through, to understand. And we need to understand that what we're doing is talking about things, ideas, concepts, things that point so that we can, can, can come closer. Hong Zhe, who compiled this collection, was one of the great poets of the Zen tradition, really beautiful poet, as well as a very deeply enlightened being. And all of the poems in this collection are his. The secondary, distinguishing enlightenment, breaking up delusion. Quickly, you should free yourself. Free your hands and relinquish net and trap. All that we've been doing this week and everything that has come down to us, in a sense, is the net and trap to follow the metaphor, to catch our delusions, catch the fish, catch the rabbit. They're upaya, they're skillful means, a very, very essentially an important concept in Buddhism. Because things have no intrinsic attributes, they have no intrinsic good or bad. It all comes down to what are they based in and how do you use them? How do we use the teachings? How do we use Zazen to speak of it that way? How do we use our mind? How do we use moral teachings? Because they have no inherent power, we can use them to free ourselves or we can use them to bind ourselves. How do you know that you're a person who can travel this path, go this way? Well, the Mahayana teachings, because that's an old question, (laughs) because the doubt is as old as human beings. Mahayana offers very clear responses to that. First, because you have Buddha nature. So the idea that I can't do this because somehow I'm inherently flawed, the Buddha sort of just laid that to rest. Not so. We may not have faith in it, we haven't realized it, but the Buddha said that is just the nature of things. It's not your doing, it's not because you're such a fine person. It's not because of what you've accomplished in your life. And so if you've not been such a fine person or have not done so many good things in your life, in a certain sense, not a problem as far as Buddha nature is concerned that you are such a person who can do this path because it's only our conflicting emotions 
that we've become so bound to and give so much meaning to, and to our, you might say, our cognitive dissonance, our false views that we hold on to and believe in. It's only because of that, those are the clouds, the veils. That's what obscures our ability to see what is so abundantly clear. And not only is that all that's binding us, and we all have these in common and in particular, but also we all already possess the qualities and virtues of an enlightened being. Nothing is absent. Nothing needs to be obtained from the outside. Yes, certain qualities surely need to be cultivated and strengthened. Compassion, loving kindness, patience, faith. All of us will benefit from developing that, those further, making them stronger, bringing them out, letting them sing. But they're already there. And another teaching that's offered that is why we all possess the capacity to do this is because consciousness, as one teacher said, consciousness by its nature inclines towards enlightenment. And I'd never come across that before, and I thought, huh, is that true? Consciousness itself inclines towards enlightenment. And so I reflected on that, and I thought, well, what might be the ways in which that's true? And I thought, well, consciousness embodied, because it has to be embodied in a person, we do incline towards pleasure, which we might think of as an affirmation of things that are giving life, and, and incline away from pain, which we can think of as, as, as those things that are more destructive of life. So that's just kind of built in. We seek understanding. We want to know and understand what things are and, and why things are happening. You know, as we, we have a kind of a built-in sense of wanting to understand what's going on. Right? Particularly when something very challenging or painful or traumatic happens. Why is this happening, right? We want to know. So there's a self, sort of a, a self-present desire to, to understand this world, not just to pass through it. That we seem to have a built-in sort of tendency to, or inclination to want to locate ourselves, to place ourselves. Like that we don't want to just be drifting somewhere in abyss, but we actually want to be grounded. Right? And that can become a tethering thing, or it can become a connected thing. To be in this time and place, to belong here, to actually be mutually alive and working together, that we stand in some essential relationship with our world. We're not just random beings living a random life. It's like, that's just not okay, right? And if we assume that position, and in that basically is that, that deep yearning, that hunger, need, I would call it, for connection. Our mind creates associations and links. That's what it does, right? Which is kind of amazing. It's brilliant. That's how we can practice. And the fact that that's our nature is how we can be focusing our attention in one area, right? Like you can be working at releasing the tension in your body. Very simple. So you can sit more comfortably. And then just sit back and be surprised at how that reaches out into so many other aspects of your life and your mind.
And so that desire to, to, to see life as something that is connected and connecting. And in that, there's a kind of order, there's a kind of sense, an intelligence to this world. Things work together, they fit together, they make sense in a certain way. When we let go of the ideas and expectations that are not based in reality of that. And then within that, there is community, us. And meaning and purpose that our lives aren't isolated, meaningless events. I, I used to work in a funeral home when I was in college, so I went to lots of funerals. I never heard a person who had deceased being eulogized as having lived an utterly meaningless life, and isn't that great? Right? Never. It was always just the opposite. This person lived to the ultimate, they lived every moment like it was, you know, they lived to the, and I was thinking, did they really? Is that really how they lived, or is that how we want them to have lived, and that's how we want to live? Is that really our aspiration, and rightly so? And so I thought, okay, maybe consciousness does incline towards enlightenment at the deepest level. <laughs> so I'll end with a poem. Amidst the world of experts, there's so much debate. Enlightenment and delusion, suffering and emancipation. Observe the returning songbirds, looking for seeds, building nests, singing at dawn and dusk. Here, is there anything out of place? Is there? Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.